Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Zephaniah, chapter 3. As we've been working through the book of Zephaniah together, we've come now to the very end of the book. It's a very glorious chapter that shows us the the outcomes, the results of God's judging work that comes upon the world when He deals with the sins of Judah and Israel, when He deals with the sins of all of the nations, when He consumes the whole earth in His judgment. What is then the results? And what we see throughout the the end of the book of uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 is, is we see the results of a, of a new world. Uh, a world where what remains are nations, and that includes both Jews and Gentiles, who consist now only of those who seek the Lord, who find their refuge in Him, who come to Him to worship Him. And so, That's going to be our focus this morning as we look particularly at Zephaniah chapter 3 and pick up where we left off last week in verse 9. We'll we'll read together down to verse 13 and and see the fruit. The fruit of this judging work. The fruit of conversion. That even as we are a people who who hear the Gospel and believe the Gospel and trust in the Lord now, there there is an end. There's an outcome to our own conversion now, and we get a glimpse of that here uh, at the end of the book of Zephaniah. So we will read together, as I said, beginning in verse 9 and read down to verse 13. Zephaniah here writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and and it is now at this point in, in verse 9, it's the Lord speaking through Zephaniah, and he says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble, and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, you are, as we have seen through Zephaniah, you are a holy God. You are a God who requires justice, 
You are a God who will carry out justice in the world. You will bring judgment to all wickedness, to all evil. And you will save those who seek refuge in you. You will deliver them from all ungodliness. And Lord, we we see here at the, the end of this book that when your judgments come upon the world, it serves the purpose, in essence, of of remaking it, of purifying it. I think of the very beginning of the Word in Genesis. When your universal judgment came upon the world in a flood, and the only thing that remained after was one family. And yet when your judgments upon the world come in the future, what will remain will not be one single family, but families from all over the earth who are united to the one man, Jesus Christ, who will rule over all. You have given us this picture of things to come that our hope would ultimately be in your power, in your strength, And in your reign. And so I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that as we meditate upon the truths that you spoke through your servant Zephaniah so long ago, and as we get a picture of things to come, that it would lift up our affections to heaven itself, and that it would cause our hopes to be on the certain promises that are to come. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Well, this past week I had lunch with a man who is a member of the Gideons, who, if you're not familiar with them, basically the, the ministry focuses on raising funds to purchase Bibles and then pa- pass out those Bibles in all kinds of places, hotels. Probably been to a hotel before and you've opened up a drawer and you've seen a Gideon's Bible. And in fact, when I was talking to him this week, I, I told him they need to put more Bibles in the Marriott hotels because you've got the Book of Mormon all throughout there and you, you need to cover it up with the with the Gideon's Bibles, but we were having lunch uh, together, and and he told me something that was rather interesting, but uh, not really surprising. He said that the Gideons like to pass out Bibles in schools, but that they haven't been able to pass Bibles out in Warren County schools for something like 15 or so years. And when I asked him why that was the case, he said that there had been a woman a while back who was a Jewish woman. And her child received a Gideon's Bible and brought it home, and it made her furious. And she complained to the school and, I believe, perhaps even threatened to sue. And what did they do? They they gave into it, and, and they decided that no more can Bibles be passed out, at least through the Gideons, in uh, the school's. Now, I I don't know, of course, the ins and outs of all of this, and uh, frankly, it wouldn't be surprising if this was the case, especially given the secular myth of neutrality 
that dominates uh, so much of the public school system, that there is such a thing as just being neutral when it comes to all different religions, which is certainly not the case. Uh, neutrality just means practical atheism. And uh, it, it would not be surprising if, if that was the result of this complaint. But that wasn't really the, the thing that had me thinking. What had me thinking here in the, our conversation was, was really just the nature of unbelief and how people react, uh, even to the smallest hint of Christianity. Uh, but even more specifically, it had me thinking about how futile unbelief is. Uh, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. Of course, Christianity was very offensive to him. It went against everything that he believed was true. He believed that it was just this deviant sect of Judaism. It was dangerous. It was a distortion. And it needed to be stamped out completely. And of course, we know from the book of Acts that that's what Paul's life was about for some time, was destroying this sect of Christianity. He became a persecutor of the church. His life, his zeal for Judaism was all about destroying this dangerous religion. And then what happened to him? Well, we know what happened to him. He was confronted directly by the resurrected Lord Jesus himself. And you remember what Jesus said to him on the Damascus road. One of the things that he said to him, he, he asked him this question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, because Jesus identifies himself with his people, with his body, the church. He's united to the church. So to persecute the people of God is to persecute Jesus. That's one of the things he said to Paul, but he also said, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And, and this, of course, was basically a very common proverb of the day that meant that you're fighting against something that you can't defeat. All of your efforts are futile and are going to prove fruitless. That you're resisting something that you can't stop. And friends, that's really, as you think about it, that's really what all unbelief is in truth. It is a kicking against the goads. It is a resistance that will prove futile. It is a rebellion that will only end in defeat. As much as fallen man wants nothing to do with God, as much as he would prefer to live in atheistic unbelief or in idolatry, as much as he'd be able, to, or he'd like to be able to, 
to stay with the the now dead Friedrich Nietzsche who has learned since that his statement was wrong, but as much as he would like to say with Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him. As much as he'd like to proclaim that and believe that and live his life in accordance with that error, all of his efforts, all of his trying, all of his straining will never result in the death of God. All of his unbelief will never result in God being no more. It will inevitably be an act of futility. And his justifications for his unbelief will all prove to be foolish. It will not matter if he pretends to have a neutral position and attempts to seem fair-minded and reasonable. All of it will ultimately prove to be futile because God has determined the end from the beginning. And what we have before us today is a glimpse of that end. We have a picture before us of the direction that everything is moving towards. We have insight into the end of all human history. And what we find here is that the future is not going to be one that is full of pluralism. It is not a future where some will worship God and some will not worship God. No, it is a future which ends with all of the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, from the furthest reaches of the earth, worshiping, loving, celebrating, and obeying the one true God. Last week, we looked at what will happen to all who remain in rebellion and unbelief. We saw that there is a judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. God said in verse 8 that He will consume the whole earth. But where we pick up today shows us that this judgment which will consume the earth and which will be poured out upon all nations will not ultimately result in a barren wasteland. When His judgment comes upon the world, when His fiery wrath is poured out upon the world, the end result is not that nothing exists anymore. There's something that comes after. This judgment that is coming upon the world is very much a kind of purifying judgment. It is a judgment that will rid the world of all unrighteousness, of all unbelief, of all sin, and will ultimately result in a a perfect, purified world that is full of righteousness and full only of worshipers of the Lord. And we know that this is 
the case. We, we know that this universal judgment will not leave the world completely barren of all people, but completely barren of all sin. And we know this because of our passage today, verses 9 to 13. This passage tells us what follows the judgment that we saw in verse 8. And what follows is a world where the nations are now all converted to God and Jerusalem likewise is populated by a converted people. In other words, verses 9 to 13 give us a vision of the end. It gives us a picture of the final results of God's converting work. And this morning I want to look at this picture together with you in two parts. First, I want to look at verses 10 to 11 in particular, and I want to look at what God says about the conversion of the nations and the results of that converting work. And then second, we'll look at the rest of the passage and see the conversion of Jerusalem. So let's consider here what is said first about the conversion of the nations. Now, again, we see this in verses 9 to 10 specifically. And verse 9, if you'll look with me there, begins in our text with a temporal statement. It says, for at that time. That's what it says in in our text text, our our ESV text. But in the original, this phrase also refers to what logically flows from something. It it refers to what what logically comes next. In fact, we find another example of the very same phrase in the middle of verse 11, only there it is translated as for then. So, So notice with me in verse 11. Here, Jerusalem is being uh, spoken about. And it says, On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And then the same phrase, For then. Same phrase we find in verse 9. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Jerusalem, in other words, will not be ashamed in this latter day. Why? Well, then we're given the explanation. Because the wicked who were in her, the proudly exultant ones, will all be removed. There's a logical flow, in other words. There's an explanation that is being communicated here. And it's the same in verse 9. Verse 9 is a transition that comes on the heels of God in verse 8 declaring that He will gather the nations and assemble kingdoms and pour out upon them His indignation and burning anger. He's going to judge the nations for all of their wickedness. He's going to consume all the earth. But what results from this judgment, again, is not a world that no longer has any people and that no longer has any more nations, 
Rather, what results is a world that now consists only of a people who know the Lord and who worship Him. And again, we see this in what is said in verse 9. For at that time, or for then, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Now, there are several images here that I think are worth unpacking further. And the first image we find in this text is the image of the the change of speech. This purification of speech. Now, uh, some have taken this very literally and argued that Zephaniah is prophesying about a day that is coming when everyone will speak one language. And not just one language, but particularly as you look at Jewish commentators, everyone will speak Hebrew. That's the pure language. And while I certainly personally don't have any objections to everyone learning how to speak Hebrew, I think that's missing the point of the picture that we have here. One issue that we find here, one of the reasons why this is the case, is that the purifying of speech that we see in the text is for the purpose, you'll notice, of calling upon the name of the Lord. But clearly, you don't have to learn how to speak Hebrew in order to call upon the name of the Lord. But then secondly, there's another image that's used in the last line of this verse which very literally says that the peoples will serve the Lord with one shoulder. And if we're to interpret that image very literally, of course we'd have to imagine some scenario where there's some mass amputation and there's just one shoulder that remains among people, right? And I don't think that's, that's what's going on here, right? That's not the picture. This is a figure of speech. It's an image that is painted with words. No, the idea here is that the purified speech of the people is purified not because it all becomes one single language, but because it's no longer tainted by sin and idolatry. The peoples will together worship and serve the one true God. The peoples will all be united in a single purpose of calling upon the name of the Lord. Of no longer worshiping Baal and Molech and all of the other false gods but now with a unified message and purpose calling upon the name of the Lord. In a certain sense, it's as if God is reversing the curse at Babel. Only the emphasis here isn't on having a single language, but a single purpose with their language. And so you'll remember in Genesis chapter 11 that the people of earth did in fact have one single language. But what did they use it for? But what was the purpose? How were they using their speech 
together. Well, they were using it, of course, to, to make a great name for themselves. They were using it to build a great tower that reached into the heights of heaven. It was an idolatrous tower. It, it was believed among the ancients that the closer you got to heaven, the closer you got to the gods. And so as they're building this massive tower, which would have been referred to or is sometimes referred to now as an ancient ziggurat, as they're building this, they're believing that they're exalting themselves into the presence of the gods. That's what they used their speech for. Idolatry and pride. And what did God do? He judged them because of their idolatry and pride and then confused their tongues. But in the future, Zephaniah is painting a picture of the peoples once again having a kind of pure speech, not because it's a single speech, but because it's being used, again we see here, by all people to call upon the name of the Lord. Moreover, as I mentioned a moment ago, there's another image that we find here, which is not only that the peoples will have a pure speech, but that they will serve the Lord literally with one shoulder or with one accord. And and the idea here is the same as you know when we say something like we're we're standing shoulder to shoulder with each other, right? It it communicates the idea of a, a single purpose and a single goal and the unified single purpose of the peoples will be that they all together are serving the Lord, the God of Israel. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's also a third image that we see here that is worth mentioning, which is found if you look in verse 10. And here, Zephaniah is continuing to speak about the peoples and, and, or the, the nations. And I bring this up because there is some debate as to whether or not he's now speaking about the Jews in verse 10. But... I think one of the things that indicates that the nations are still in view in the text is the phrase, my worshipers. The word here for my worshipers communicates the, the idea of someone supplicating God or someone offering prayers to God, lifting up their requests to God. They are God's supplicators, we might Say, or we might even say they are those who pray to him. And, and this, of course, ties in with verse 9 with the nations calling upon the Lord. And so the subject and the theme is the same in verses 9 and 10. Zephaniah is speaking still about all of the peoples of the earth. And here in verse 10, he speaks of those who live in the most distant parts of the world. Those, he says, who are from beyond the rivers of Cush. And this is a reference to all those who now are living, in essence, south of what is modern-day Ethiopia 
or Sudan. We might say it's, it's the, all the southern reaches of Africa. It's, it's Malawi. It's, it's Zambia. It's Tanzania. Mozambique. Right? All the places beyond the rivers of Cush. And what does God say of them? He says of these distant peoples. He, he calls them the daughter of His dispersed ones. Which is another way of just saying they're the people who belong to those who are scattered throughout the world. He says they will come to Him and shall bring Him offerings. Again, the image is of a world where on the other side of the globe, people will know the Lord and they will worship Him. And they will desire to be in His presence and to bring Him offerings and tribute. They will want to honor Him. They will want to boast in Him and to praise Him. They will desire as a response to His graciousness to bring Him gifts. When you're giving someone a gift, you're doing it because you... You love them. You want to show them honor. You want to bring them joy. And and the nations are bringing these offerings to God not out of a sense of duty as if they've been conquered. And and they're like the the Moabite king, Mesha. If you remember from 2 Kings, he has to bring tribute to the king of Israel. No, no, no. They're bringing these offerings because they want to. They want to travel from all over the world to worship the Lord. And we see something of this sort in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. At least we we see parts of these kinds of things happening. We see in Revelation chapter 7, for example, in verses 9 to 10, where the Apostle John has a vision of a vast multitude. That all the peoples are together praising the Lord. He says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. But that doesn't seem, that doesn't sound like people who are coming bound in chains and who are having to give worship to a king they'd much rather not see. No, the case here is is the nations, the multitudes of, of people are willingly desiring to gather around the throne of God and praise Him. Why? For His salvation. He saved them. He saved them from all over the world. His people were scattered beyond the rivers of Cush. And He saved them. And they are now here worshiping Him and praising Him. The prophecy in Zephaniah is speaking of this very same kind of reality where all the peoples, once God's judgments have been carried out, will at last be united together in serving the Lord and calling upon His name. 
It is a vision where the nations have been transformed. They are no longer in rebellion, but are in complete submission. They are no longer living in idolatry, but they are those who desire to worship the Lord. But I want you to notice, fourthly, with me, how this change comes about. How does this conversion of the once rebellious nations happen? Do the people suddenly come to their senses? Has the stain of sin just sort of naturally faded away and and now the people realize that their idolatry was was futile and foolish? Is it just a a natural process of evolution, right? The the more that time passes, the the more that all things progressively are supposed to get better. And, And so the nations just sort of, by inertia, start worshiping the Lord. No, this conversion happens, we see here, by an act of God. It is God Himself directly who does the work of converting the peoples. Notice again in verse 9, He says, for at that time, I, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I will do it. The nations do not become more enlightened. They do not just progressively get better over time. No, the reason why history will conclude with the nations worshiping God is because God Himself, by a divine act of His own will, will change the nations. That is His determination from eternity past. And He will accomplish that determination by the strength of His own will. When Jesus spoke of Himself as the Good Shepherd, you'll remember who gathers His sheep and who lays down His life for them. He, he of course, in that chapter in John 10, was speaking directly to the Jews. He was speaking of gathering His sheep from the Jews, but then he also said in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What fold? The fold of the nation of the Jews. I have other sheep, in other words, who are outside of the Jewish nation. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock. And there will be one shepherd. It is Jesus Himself as the Good Shepherd who will go into the world and gather His people to Himself. The conversion of anyone, whether that was a Jew, whether that is a Greek or Egyptian or a Syrian, whether that is a European or an Asian or an African, The conversion of anyone is due always directly because of the work of God. He has a people scattered throughout the world. He has a people who is scattered throughout all times, all history. And through the Gospel and the Word of God, 
And the work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the Gospel, He calls His people out of the world and into His kingdom. His Word goes forth in power and it accomplishes the very purpose for which He sends it. And if you have believed in Christ, and if you have come to be be one of those who call upon the name of the Lord, it is ultimately because God in Christ sought you out by name. And He changed your heart. And He changed your speech so that your speech would be the kind that lifts up praises to God. You, if you know the Lord, were once a people who cursed God, who wanted nothing to do with Him, whose hearts were in rebellion against Him. But then what does God do? He sends forth His Word, He sends the Gospel, and He calls His people, and by that call, changes them. You respond to that change. Your heart now desires things that once it did not. The heart that was at one time at enmity with God is now a heart that longs to be in the presence of God, to see Him face to face. Perhaps some of you came to faith later in life. I, I'm always, I always praise the Lord for those who came to faith very early in life and don't have much of a memory of you know, a lot of wretchedness before coming to Christ. That's a tremendous blessing. A lot less scars. But if you've come to faith later right, in life, you, you probably have distinct memories of the kinds of rebellions that you were living out in your life. The, the, the kinds of wretchedness that deserved judgment. You probably have distinct memories of the kind of hatred you had towards God. Well, what changed? changed? You just, on your own, come to your senses? Sort of a natural moral reformation? Somebody give you a good talk and you heard a good inspirational speech and things changed? No, that's not what happened. You had a heart of stone. And that's the case whether or not you came to faith later or earlier. We all had a heart of stone. A heart, in other words, that was dead. It doesn't beat. If you think of that image in, in Ezekiel, a heart of stone, it doesn't work. There's no blood coming out of it. Right? And, and you can throw things at it. You can throw words at it and there's no response at all because it's not alive. That's what we all had apart from Christ. And what God does is a divine intervention. He comes in to us and He takes that stone of a heart and he removes it, and he throws it into the bottom of the sea. And then he performs surgery upon us. And he gives us a new heart, flesh, that beats. And now we live. That's the work of God. And that's what God is saying. And that's what God is saying. For the nations, for the nations, to purify their speech. What will come out of their tongues will no longer be rebellion, but will be worship. Why? Because I will do it. I will gather my people. 
from the four corners of the world. And when that day comes, when the world is no longer under the curse, and we are glorified and raised to eternal life, and all the peoples are serving the Lord with one accord, we will all sing His praises and worship Him, not because we have figured things out, or because we were more righteous than others, or more wise, or more intelligent. No, we will all praise God together because together we will know that the only reason we have life and eternal blessedness, the only reason we can stand before God and see Him face to face and not be consumed by His holiness is because He has covered us in the blood of His Son and sanctified us and made us holy. We will know without a shadow of a doubt that God was gracious and that that He changed us. And because of that, we stand before Him. So we see in verses 9-10, to we see here the conversion of the nations. But then additionally, in verses 11-13, to we also see the conversion of Jerusalem. Now, here in these verses... Jerusalem is in essence personified. It's as if God is speaking to the city as if the city itself was a person. And as He speaks to the city of Jerusalem, He describes the transformation that she herself will undergo because she will no longer be populated by the wicked. Notice what is said beginning in verse 11. He says, On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. There is, of course, a, a recognition that the city has rebelled. And because of her rebellion in the past, Jerusalem had been punished and indeed put to shame. Specifically after Zephaniah's day. When judgment came upon Jerusalem in the form of the Babylonian Empire and she was exiled, she was put to shame because of all of her ungodliness. He basically turned the city into an unpopulated wasteland. Jeremiah described the shame that came upon Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. He says, particularly in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He says, All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. And we see it. The the, the judgment that God brought against Jerusalem because of all of her sins brought shame to her. And when all the surrounding nations would now speak of Jerusalem, they would not speak of a city in, in which Yahweh, the God of all the universe, dwelled. They would not speak of a glorious city of beauty and perfection. 
they would speak now of a city that was utterly worthless, that no one lived in, that no one cared about. The once beautiful bride had now become an abandoned woman. But here in Zephaniah, God speaks of another day. He speaks of a day in the future when Jerusalem will no longer have shame. And why will she no, no longer be ashamed? Well, God explains in verses 11 and 12. Again, that then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. God Himself is going to do a work of purging and purifying the city of Jerusalem. The city had at one time been vastly populated by people who were full of pride. It was vastly populated by those who worshipped idols and sacrificed their children to false gods. The city was made up of greedy judges and idolatrous priests and false prophets. We saw early in the first chapter of Zephaniah how there were so many people in Jerusalem who basically lived as practical atheists when it came to the Lord. They didn't believe that the Lord would do anything to them, whether it was good or bad. In chapter 1, verse 12, they said in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do, Ill, nor will he do ill. Now, he's not a God who blesses, and He's not a God who curses. Nothing will come upon us. He's in essence a dead God. He's a sleeping God. He's a God who does not act. And what did God say? That he would do in response, he said, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. I will punish those who believe that I am a dead God, that I am asleep. And here at the end of the book, we see the end of that purging process. The Lord Himself removes the proud and He places within the city those who are humble and lowly. He populates it with those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And it is those people, it is the ones who used to be a tiny remnant, but who will then be the sole inhabitants, it is those who will rule in her. It is those who have been converted by God and who seek to do His will who will live in the city. And what that will produce ultimately is a culture of peace and prosperity and blessing. It will make a culture of righteousness. The end of verse 13 says, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And because righteousness will be established, there will be no cause for fear in Jerusalem. There will be no worry of a coming judgment of God handing His people over to wicked armies. For they shall graze and lie down 
and none shall make them afraid. This is the end of the story, friends. This is where everything is headed. This is the direction that history from the beginning has been moving towards the nations worshiping the one true God and Jerusalem, the city of God, being the center of His kingdom and being established forever in righteousness and truth. The capital of the world will be Jerusalem. And God's throne will be established forever in it. That's our picture. That's the world to come. And so the question that I want to close with is, are we to do with this? We have the picture before us. How are we to respond? And I'm going to say a few things briefly here. One is just taking the words, again, of verse 8. Seriously again. Because verse 8 leads into this vision. And you remember how verse 8 ends. Wait. Wait. We are to wait for the Lord. He says again in the beginning of verse 8, Therefore, wait for Me, declares the Lord. And then He not only goes on to speak of the judgment that is to come, but then, as we've seen this morning, all of the, the glory of the nations worshiping Him. We wait. That means we trust. That means we hope. The Gospel, what we believe in, the, the, the pillar, the foundation of Christianity is, is one in which we hope and trust in the promises of God to come. And we wait and we hope as long as it takes. You know, you think about some of the promises that were made to the people of God long ago. And how long it took for them to be fulfilled. You think about the very first promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the midst of judgment, a promise is given to Adam and Eve that from the woman will come an offspring who will bruise the head of the serpent. That was made thousands of years ago. Did God keep His promise? Absolutely He kept His promise. Were the patriarchs hoping in that promise? Yes, throughout their lives. Did they see it fulfilled in their day? No, they did not. It would await ultimately the coming of Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David. He is the fulfillment of that long-awaited-for promise. And just as the patriarchs waited for generation after generation, so also are we still to be a people who are waiting on the fulfillment of these promises. But what God promises, He will do. In the same way that we read earlier from Psalm 34, that all of the righteous will suffer afflictions. There are many afflictions, and yet we are told the Lord will deliver Him out of them all. What well, does that mean that we will never see death? No. 
What does that mean, as we think of it in light of the whole of Scripture, does that mean that we will ultimately conquer death? Yes, it does. And it does because we've already seen it happen in the person of Christ. We may suffer afflictions. We may not understand exactly why and how things are happening the way they are. But we think our entire lives and our eternity on the promises of God. And so one of the things that we are told here is to wait. These things will happen. God will do it. But even now, we are, as we await the fulfillment of these promises, we are to conform our lives now to what is to come. And for an unbeliever who does not know the Lord, that means now you need to stop your rebellion. Because it will go nowhere. The more you reject the Lord, the more you are simply heaping condemnation upon yourself. The rebellion will not ultimately result in victory over the Lord, but in a fearsome judgment by the Lord. So in order to conform yourself to what is sure to come in the future, you must now submit yourself to God. You must turn from your sin and your idolatry and trust in Christ. You must submit to the King who rules now and who will rule forever in the kingdom to come. And you must do it before it is too late. You live your life in conformity to what is to come by trusting in Christ now. And friends, it's very similar for us who have already trusted in the Lord and are submitting ourselves to the King. We are to continue to trust in Him. But the way that we live our lives now on earth as we await the fulfillment of these promises is also in light of what is to come. So, for example, we do not lie to one another. We do not speak deceitfully to one another. Why? Among the many reasons is because the kingdom of God and the city of Jerusalem will have no liars in it. That's what's to come. We are to be a people who, who live out justice. right? We are to do what is right. We are to oppose what is evil in every aspect of our lives. Why? Because the city of Jerusalem will be populated by a people who do no injustice. There's a very real sense in which much of the Christian life is learning how to live as you will live forever. It's it's learning how to love one another and be kind to one another because that's what you will be doing for all eternity. There's a sense in which we gather together to worship the Lord together because that's what we will do. For eternity, we will desire to worship Him. And so, these are our training wheels. We we practice now. And all of these practices and disciplines as we obey them conform us more into the image of Christ and to what we are to become. Unlike an unbeliever, who lives in denial of what is to come, we are to be those who live in light of
of not only what has happened in the past, but also what is to come. And we are to live with the certain surety that God will bring all of the nations to himself. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, again, we are grateful for the many visions and many pictures that you give to us throughout your word of your works. What you are beginning to do even now and how all things will conclude. And Lord, I pray for all of us here that as we look to the future, that it would not simply be some distant, far-off vision that has no effect on us, but that we would seek to conform our lives to Your will in heaven and to do so on earth. And so, Lord, I pray that You would use Your promises to provoke within us desires for obedience, desires to submit our lives fully to Christ. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.